Melissa Boyles. Welcome to Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping our industry. In this episode, I get to interview Jennifer Toth. Jennifer is the director of the Maricopa County Department of Transportation and serves as our county engineer. Prior to joining McDot, Jennifer started her career with the Arizona Department of Transportation in their EIT program. She grew through the ranks, serving in a number of different roles around the state, where after a foray into the private sector doing transportation planning, she ended up in the role of the director of the multimodal planning division. Ultimately, she became our first female state engineer and then took the leap to focus on completely shifting the organizational culture of Maricopa County Department of Transportation. She's someone who has been contributing to the evolution and growth of Arizona's transportation infrastructure for her entire career, and it was a pleasure to be able to interview her. So without further ado, let's talk to Jennifer. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining me on Moving Arizona. Thanks for having me. It's super exciting to have you on the show. But for the folks who don't know you and are not familiar with your role in the industry, do you want to explain a little bit about who you are and what you do for the Maricopa County Department of Transportation? Sure. So for McDodd or Maricopa County Department of Transportation, I'm the director and I'm also the county engineer for the county. Um, so we have um, McDot is about 400 people. We plan, we design, we build, we maintain, and we operate the transportation system in the unincorporated areas of uh, Maricopa County. So 9,000 square miles of Maricopa County. <laughs> so it's you know larger than some states. And definitely more populous than some states. So that's kind of an interesting statistic that I always throw out there. More populous, but for Maricopa County, there are areas that are super concentrated and then are much more rural in nature. Yeah, definitely. I think that's what's very interesting about Maricopa County. You have very urban areas and then you also have very rural areas and the difference between them. And of course, how you maintain the system doesn't really change, but how you operate the system, you know, when when you have a core urban area is very different than in a rural area. Can you explain those differences? Well, in the obviously in the urban area, you have traffic signals, whereas, you know, in, in the rural areas, you might have a stop sign, you might not. But, you know, the operation standpoint of trying to get as much efficiency out of the system when you have an arterial network, that's the main component of an urban system. And then, of course, the difference between the paved road versus maintaining a dirt road in the rural area and grading that on a regular schedule. So the paved road versus dirt road, is that part of the, uh, is it the PM10 program? Yeah, so there is the PM10 area where we are trying to convert our dirt roads into paved roads in order for air quality issues. But we still have areas that are rural outside of that PM10 area that will continue to be dirt roads. What do you do to maintain a dirt road? Just out of curiosity. (laughs) (laughs) We have a regular grading schedule. So, you know, our operators go out there and grade the road to make it smooth and passable. And um, we bring in material when we need to, to fill in, you know, the potholes in a dirt road per se. (laughs) They kind of get washboardy sometimes. It is a different set of uh, challenges when you think about rural versus urban. And I think one of the things that we've been talking a lot about here 
industry-wise is how do we maximize efficiency of the investments we've already made. And one of the things that you guys are piloting that has taken quite a bit of time to sort of implement and get off the ground is the Bell Road Corridor and the signal optimization and just won a national award for that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that project and program? Um, sure. Yeah, it's really the, the traffic management system along Bell Road. It was an incredible project. I think I'm going to misstate how many jurisdictions. I want to say six or seven different jurisdictions were involved in the, the project in terms of the signal timing. Our traditional way of signal timing is you set the signal time and then you walk away perhaps for three years <laughs> before you reevaluate it again and, and or there's a problem that you need to reevaluate. So what this system does is it, it takes real-time traffic flow and adjusts the signals accordingly. So let's say you have you know, a stadium nearby it will adjust the flow of that traffic signal and the flow of the traffic, I should say, will adjust, you know, based upon that that signal timing. So um, it's really quite innovative. Um, It was probably the largest project, 50 different signals, largest project nationwide that has been done that way. Definitely the technology is the way to go as we continue to move forward. And are you looking at additional corridors to try to deploy the technology on? Yes, definitely where we can have that regional partnership between the different jurisdictions. I think it's something that we are looking at from a regional standpoint. You also have pretty visible, I would say, high-profile um, initiatives around autonomous vehicles and your kind of getting known for being a champion of that. Do you want to talk about your autonomous vehicle programs and the very cool, is it a testing facility up north? Yeah, I love talking about (laughs) this subject. It's really fun. So we received a a grant to be able to, or a test bed initiative and up in Anthem, the northern part of Phoenix, initiated that test bed. And what makes the Anthem community really good for the testing is it's a closed community. So it's not an arterial network where you're going through, you know, it's self-contained, so to speak. And so it provides us a a real opportunity for real life testing with real vehicles and ability to get out there during real traffic. It started out in terms of emergency response and trying to minimize whenever emergency responders are coming to an intersection. They both think they have the right of way. And so if two emergency responders are coming to the same intersection, it, it allows the prioritization and for them to be able to see that in their vehicle as to, oh, there's an ambulance, you know, that's coming and will hit the intersection before the fire truck will. And so it helps prevent those type of accidents. But that's what it originally started with. And then we went on and looked at transit prioritization to be able to uh, get transit vehicles through an intersection quicker. So as the transit vehicle approaches, it, it changes that and allows that to turn green. We've also uh, implemented some uh, notifications in terms of work zone capacity. So if there's a lane that's closed, it will notify to, to say, hey, the right lane is closed ahead. You need to start to move over. And then pedestrian access as well. We've timed it. So normally you have a pedestrian countdown and there's an application on your cell phone that you can change the timing. So one of my my daughters is quadriplegic in a wheelchair. And so she could actually change the timing of the pedestrian green time to be able to have a little longer time period to be able to cross the intersection. So there's a lot of great things that have come out of that program and are being actually implemented now. Um, That pedestrian crosswalk has actually gone commercial from one of the research students at the University of Arizona. So it's really cool to see that it's gone from a research phase into actual implementation. Can you explain the difference between autonomous and connected? 
Yeah, so what I was talking about was the connected aspect. It's connected to the infrastructure, the vehicle, to the infrastructure and vehicle, the vehicles. And then autonomous is what I term as self-driving. So it's a, a vehicle that can drive itself without you know, having a, a human interact with it. That's fully autonomous. We aren't there yet as a, a nation or as a world quite yet. So that's really the difference between an autonomous versus connected vehicle. And we dabble more on the connected vehicle side than on the autonomous side, but that's coming forward quite rapidly. As you see, Phoenix is really the hotbed for that in terms of Waymo testing and Too Simple. And there's just a lot happening on that realm. On the connected side of things, Autonomous vehicles are very exciting, and that's to some people. I'm maybe I'm a little bit old school. I don't like the idea of a car driving me. I like the idea of driving a car, but I can see some benefits to having technology step in and warning signals and stuff like that. But on the connected side, what type of infrastructure has to be in place for all of those different components to really be able to talk to each other? So a lot of what we've concentrated on is what's called SPAT or signal phase and timing. And so basically, if you take an intersection, you would need to map that intersection to be able to have that signal phase and timing interact with that, as well as, you know, you have what's called DSRC, the radio connection in terms of um, being able to have that signal talk to the vehicle and the vehicle talk to the signal uh, or to between the two vehicles. So there's a lot that happens component-wise in terms of mapping your infrastructure and knowing where everything is and then being able to see that vehicle on that map and how they're approaching that intersection to change that signal timing. When you were talking about the pedestrian crossings and how someone could maybe extend that crossing period a little bit in the sake of safety, how did that process evolve? Because I could see it as something that we would easily identify as a need, but then how do you manage control of that? And how did that research process go? I can't imagine on my smartphone being able to tell the crosswalk, give me you know, 15 more seconds or 30 more seconds or whatever it might be. You know, I wish I could answer that. (laughs) (laughs) That was being developed prior to me coming into McDot. So I got to see the end result of it (laughs) versus being involved in the research phase. Um, But that's a great question for Faisal. I'll have to follow up and ask him that. Maybe you could talk him into letting me interview him. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm sure he'd be happy to. Speaking of coming into McDot, you had a pretty impressive career before you took over as the director of McDot and the county engineer. Can we talk a little bit about how you started out at ADOT and how you sort of progressed through the ranks? Because you were also our first female state engineer, and that that had a huge impact for people, especially women, I think, in the industry, not just here, but elsewhere, and being a role model. Can you talk about your progression through the state DOT? Sure. I started with ADOT uh, as an engineer in training out of um, school. I got my degree in civil engineering and also my master's in construction management. And so through the EIT program, I rotated and I was in the Kingman district. And so I decided to take a permanent position as a resident engineer up in the Kingman district and had great opportunity to work on the first rural design build project on State Route 68. So at the time, the department had, that was the only, only the third design build project. It's weird to think of that now because we've done so many design build projects, but at the time, that was when we were first dipping our toe in the water, so to speak. And so did that and then um, moved over into project management over to Flagstaff and worked with the Flagstaff and the Holbrook District on their projects. Really enjoyed that aspect of it. 
I got tapped to lead the State Route 179 needs-based implementation plan and the improvements there. And that was a really fascinating project. It was a very, 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 very controversial project at the beginning. And so to turn that around was really probably the, the pinnacle, I would say, of my career in terms of just the, the pleasure of that project uh, and what, what you saw the community being able to, to transform. So that was really a, a fun project. What was controversial about it? Oh, so the department wanted to put in a five-lane road through 179, which is through the village of Oak Creek and, and the city of Sedona. And of course, the community did not see that as representative of their community. The controversy was two-lane versus four-lane and being able to modify the department's goals of what they really wanted to accomplish and incorporate the community's goals into what they wanted to accomplish for the roadway was just a tremendous aspect of really true collaboration and partnership between the different agencies and the Forest Service as well, Federal Highway Administration. What was the final disposition? So what was the plan that ADOT came in with and how did it end up? Oh, wow. So um, yeah, five lane section signals, that was the original plan. And then what ended up was roundabouts, uh, lots of roundabouts on 179 and uh, also two lane section and then turn lanes where needed so that you can get that extra capacity as well as I think the other big item is the pedestrian facilities, pedestrian and multimodal facilities along uh, 179 as well. I have a story when I was, my daughter was in a stroller and so walking along 179 between some of the businesses and you're just, there's no sidewalk or anything and you're trying to, to, to maneuver. So I had firsthand knowledge of what that was like <laughs> and being able to implement those pedestrian and multimodal facilities, very beneficial to the community and the economic aspect of the community as well. There's a lot of pedestrian traffic in Sedona. And if you can park somewhere, leave your car at a hotel or wherever, and, and you can navigate the rest of the, the area on foot, it's so much nicer. And now with the big walkway along that big scenic area, that's amazing. And they, they have the historic or the informational signs that are posted kind of in between the two sort of activity centers, if you will, that are where it's open on that one side, where it's just actually a really nice walk where before you would have felt like you were taking your life into your own hands. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So from Flagstaff, where to from there? So from Flagstaff, I have been taking classes at NEU um, in planning. And so I decided I wanted to move over into the private sector. And I went over to, at the time, it was Dim Dim Harris, and is now AECOM and worked in their planning area and, and really got that opportunity to kind of expand my planning horizons, so to speak, work on transit projects and border planning, local planning versus, you know, ADOT planning type of situations. And uh, then from there, I worked for ADOT in the planning division and became the planning director for the multimodal planning division. And then moved on to the state engineer role after that. I loved my career at ADOT. I was very thankful. Had a lot of great mentors along the way. Dick Wright, Deborah Brisk, Sam Elters. You know, just some amazing people that helped lead the way and helped me be able to be who I am. Well, and it seems like from an educational perspective of being able to cover construction planning, or I should say in order, planning design or the engineering component and then construction and then also working in the districts of looking at things that were more along the lines of maintaining assets. It seems like that experience and education combined supports your role now at McDot perfectly. 
Absolutely. I think, you know, that's what I would say a huge benefit of having worked at ADOT was that I had that ability to work in so many different areas and to get that bigger, broader picture of the entire agency versus just one particular area. I was very fortunate from that perspective. And absolutely, that is what has helped shape being able to be the director and and to see the different components of an organization, having worked in almost every area except for IT and finance. Well, that's what you have Faisal for. (laughs) (laughs) So taking the leap from the state engineer role to the county engineer role, to some people might feel like it's not necessarily a progression, but that's not how you saw things. Can you share how you came to the conclusion that you were going to leave the Arizona DOT for the county DOT? Sure. I think, you know, at the time I really wasn't looking and (laughs) I received a call from the county and they said they wanted to talk to me about the the potential. And I I kind of said, well, okay, I'll, I'll talk to you, but I'm not really, you know, I didn't think I was interested at the time, but then when I was talking to the county manager and, and the deputy county manager, they they had a vision. And I think that's what I'm good at is to lead change in organizations. And so that's really what they were seeking at the time. And the ability to come in and create something new and create what I felt was needed, but obviously in relation to the vision that they set forward as well was it was a challenge and I love challenges and opportunities. So it definitely piqued my interest and uh, we started exploring it a little bit more and then I said, okay, (laughs) I'm ready. So what was the vision that you signed up to deliver? I believe it's the excellence in customer service and efficiency looking at innovation and how do we do things differently, but definitely the customer service focus was a huge component of where the county is and has been and wanted to head for McDot. Well, who are the customers for McDot, would you say? I would say the citizens. Um, you know, that's the, the, the big difference I saw from where I was at ADOT here is that ADOT operates a a system. And although McDOT operates a system, you're in people's front yards. And so that's, that's what you always have to keep in mind is that the local road that goes in front of your house is owned and maintained by somebody, whether that's McDOT or a city jurisdiction. There's that tangible direct impact of what you're doing and, and what, the interaction is with the citizens directly. Coming on board at McDot, what did you feel your biggest challenges were? Oh, I think setting a vision for McDot, you know, really what was the core purpose of what we were trying to do? And so once we settled on that as providing connections that improve people's lives, it was really getting everybody focused towards that direction. And then setting those core values of being service-minded team builders to get it done with a smile, you know, really changing that mindset and that culture to be responsive was where I headed. Yeah. You made some pretty significant organizational changes when you came on board. And I know you're, uh, I want to call her your cohort in crime, but she was probably more appropriately your right-hand person. Teresa retired earlier this year. And while that must have been a big loss, though I know you're still friends on a personal level, seems like you took the opportunity to make some changes again and have a new deputy director. Yeah, you know, I'm all for not being stagnant. (laughs) And so I think that whenever you do have that opportunity to kind of look at it differently, you know, embrace that opportunity that there might be a different way organizationally or process-wise. And so we did make the decision and actually Teresa and I made the decision together 
before she left to restructure a little bit of how we were doing business. It was great when Teresa and I first came in to make that, how it was structured. It was, you know, it, it just really worked towards our strengths. You know, she balanced out the finance and IT and all of that. that <laughs> I I didn't have as much experience in that. And so I learned a lot from her over the last six years, especially on the finance and budgetary standpoint. So it worked for where we were as an organization and where I was career-wise with my strengths and weaknesses. And so when Teresa retired, we looked at the opportunity to balance the staffing level too, because our maintenance workforce is about half of what McDot employees are. And so to bring in a deputy director that can handle the, the construction and maintenance and the facilities just made sense to, to balance that work across the organization as well. And so I'm very, very excited to have Jesse on board and being able to share that and develop that symbiotic relationship, you know, similar to what, what I had with Teresa as well. And you all worked together a little bit when you were at ADOT as well. So he's not someone that you were unfamiliar with. That's correct. Yeah. Jesse came on board when I was state engineer and uh, he worked in the Globe District. So I had a little opportunity to work with him, not as directly, but definitely knew of him and very excited to have the opportunity to get to know him a little better now. He brings a whole different kind of energy. Yes. Hilarious and smart and likes to make decisions quickly and not rashly, but let's figure out the problem. Let's figure out the solution. Let's implement a solution and move on. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's what is needed, especially in the construction and maintenance areas and facilities as well. Speaking of the maintenance areas and and facilities, one of the things that I believe you've been looking closely at is asset management. On that front, how are you progressing? I think we have progressed a tremendous amount. You know, if I I look back as to when I came into McDonald, (laughs) this is an interesting progression. You know, ADOT, we knew exactly which roads were ours and like I said, as a system. But when I came to McDot, I was like, well, where's our map of roads? Oh, well, you know, how do I know what I'm supposed to be maintaining? And so it was, well, here's somewhat of a map and an old system that we have, which was the Roadrunner system. And so you could look it up, but if you really wanted to make sure that you maintain that road, like if a citizen called in, then I'd have to call our real estate department and say, okay, do we own and maintain this road? And it could take almost three days to be able to get back to that citizen to say, yes, that's our road and we will be out there and and do something about it. Or no, it's not our road. It's in a different jurisdiction or it's a, you know, a private road. We have come a long way from there. We implemented a GIS-based system called our road information tool. And it's available to the public too, which is great to be able to, to see what roads are owned and maintained by McDot. But then we progressed into the asset management aspect of it and really taking an inventory of all of our assets and being able to manage them in terms of a workflow, a work order processing system as well. And then what's interesting is, so we've got about two, almost three years of baseline data associated with our assets and looking at our level of service of, you know, where we are. And this year is our first year where we're looking at budgeting based on that level of service. So let's say our pavements are in really good condition and they're level of service A, but our guardrail is a level of service F. Well, how do we balance the funding between those two assets to be able to get to a, you know, a, a more even level? And what's that look like over you know, a number of years of being able to program and budget accordingly. So we've come quite a ways. We still have 
a little ways to go. <laughs> Definitely uh, have enjoyed that progress of seeing where we were to where we are today. So speaking of where you are today, what's on the horizon? Because you mentioned you like a challenge and I know that you're always assessing what's possible. I think that's one of the things that people appreciate about your approach to leadership is that you don't operate within the constraints of, you know, here's our box. You operate within the constraint of, well, what do we really need to accomplish? So with all the progress you've made so far, what's coming up next? Oh, there's so many exciting things, you know, <laughs> I would say similar to what the, the city of Phoenix is doing and looking at what I would call cool pavements. We're taking the opportunity to learn and look at sustainability as well. Those are some components that I think, you know, are, are on the near horizon, obviously on the the farther horizon, and we talked a little bit about autonomous vehicles, and I think, you know, we're, we're keeping our eye on that and are definitely plugged in nationally. I co-chair the Cooperative Automated Transportation Coalition, so definitely trying to keep an eye on what technology is out there that can help improve how we're doing business, not just autonomous vehicles, but even you know, our asset management system, we're looking at a 311 system to combine with that from an efficiency standpoint so that citizens can actually enter in and report, here's where we're, we have a pothole or here's where a sign is down. And it automatically would go into our maintenance workflow system. So always an eye towards how do we improve our processes and our efficiency. I think that's a key component. Can you share the progress that you're making for the coalition? The coalition has been around for a while. There's three different work groups. One is the policy and regulation, which I chair that as well as co-chaired the overall organization structure. And so we've done a lot in terms of the policy and regulation group has done a lot in terms of looking at legislation and what's been done for autonomous vehicle legislation across the board and what terminologies are people using and are we using the same terminology so that we can kind of get a nexus from a national standpoint. We've looked at just, you know, basically taking an inventory of what states and what jurisdictions had legislative authority for autonomous vehicle testing and autonomous vehicles. And so there's a wealth of information and a lot of just sharing of information. And then Faisal, he's been involved in the owner-operator as well as the OEMs, the manufacturers forum. That's something that has really taken shape over these past years. Before, the infrastructure owners didn't really talk to the car manufacturers. And so getting those connections has been invaluable in terms of, especially for owners, trying to understand what are the implications for the infrastructure? What do we need to have in place in order to um, be able to support the manufacturing of those systems? So it's been really an interesting evolution and dynamic, and it's continuously evolving. I can imagine. And I'm sure we're going to see a lot more on that front. Speaking of technology and collaboration, one of the projects that you all are working very closely with ADOT on is this Mobility 101 project. Can you share a little bit about that and kind of where we are on that process? Yeah, so the Loop 101 Mobility Project, what's really interesting about that, and as we talked about the Anthem testbed, the research that's been done at the Anthem testbed, now we have an opportunity to implement it on a much larger scale with the Loop 101 aspect. So looking at incident corridor management and how do we automate that so that if there's, a let's say, an incident on the Loop 101, and we shut down the freeway, how does that impact the arterial network? And how do you route people 
automatically and adjust the timing of those signals to be able to accommodate that extra flow on the arterial network. And it'll really be interesting to see how this progresses. We're very excited about it. I think it's a good opportunity for the region as a whole. There's all the different jurisdictions are partners, Maddie's a partner, ADOS partner. So a lot of coordination between the different systems and being able to make this work in a successful way. The cities are partners in the process as well, right? Yes. Yeah. All the, yeah, the, the local jurisdictions. Yeah. So I think it was 2019 that you selected a GEC team to lead that on the consulting side. Is that still in process? Is there like a later project that's coming out to wrap that all up and and move the system forward? Where is it in the development stage? Sure. We're, it's called the CONOPS or Conceptual Operations standpoint of where we are right now. And so we're in the process of developing that plan of what is the concept of operations. How are we going to operate this system? And developing those requirements before we can actually then build that system to be able to make that signal timing change or how do we, you know, put in these different scenarios and automate the system. Those components, that that build component, that's mostly technology though, right? It's getting all of the signals and cameras and timing and everything to talk to each other within that big group of impacted agencies. Yeah, it's definitely um, technology. And I would say those are good questions for Faisal. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you a lot more detail than I as to how they would develop that system and, and be able to implement it. Yeah. It's just exciting. I think you know, Arizona, we're actually really quite leading edge in a lot of the things that we're looking at. And I think part of the reason that we're able to do that is this strong collaboration among the different stakeholders. It seems like our agencies work really well together to move initiatives forward that serve communities. I definitely would say that. I think, you know, it goes all the way from the relationship between ADOT and FHWA. I mean, when I was state engineer and saw what the relationship in other states, I mean, the two agencies would be butting heads. I'm like, what's the point of that? And and so we we have had a tremendous amount of history in terms of collaboration and partnership between the local jurisdictions, between ADOT, the Federal Highway Administration. And I do think that is what makes us so successful and the ability for us to be innovative and implement things in a much quicker time frame than others are able to because of that partnership and that collaboration. I think that's been demonstrated in our current situation as well, where I know you have shared resources with regard to communication and probably others as well, responding to this pandemic environment. Has McDot been impacted in other ways by COVID-19? You know, I would say we've been impacted on a budgetary standpoint. Um, We've been impacted in terms of, I think some of the positive impacts have been innovation, um, being able to get our permit system online, you know, be able to do things electronically, which we were headed in that direction, but it pushed us there just a little quicker than we had wanted to. So that's always a good thing. So a lot of those type of things have come out of the pandemic. I think the the difficulty that I face as a leader, because I'm very hands-on with people, that I, I miss the most is being able to be out there in the field as much as possible with our maintenance crews and um, or just even to visit them, you know, because we are very limited. We've adjusted our hours so that we have two crews. Normally we would have, you know, 20 to 25 people all in the crew room at one time, but now we have a Monday through Thursday group that starts at five in the morning and a Tuesday through Friday group that starts at six in the morning so that you have disparate groups or, you know, similar to what 
the schools are doing where you have pods of, of people that are working together to try to minimize that exposure. So from that perspective, the connection has been more difficult, being able to stay connected with all of McDot employees. And that's probably been the most difficult challenge, I think. You guys pretty quickly were able to transition to, other than the maintenance and the field crews, you were able to transition to um, a work from home environment. And I've heard from some of your folks that they're pretty happy working from home. Some are thrilled and won't come back to the office and others are anxious to get back in and and be back with their team. So uh, how was that shifting from everyone's working in one place to everyone's working remotely? You know, I think luckily McDot had been using telecommuting. There were a lot of um, people that were able to telecommute prior to the pandemic. And so it wasn't foreign to us. We had a a program where we tracked hours, you know, some accountability mechanisms already in place. So that was a benefit. And our IT department at McDot is just incredible. And so I think with, I have to give kudos to them of being able to get us all in less than a two week time period deployed at home and be able to have access and They have done a phenomenal job in keeping us connected and being able to implement a teleworking environment as extensive as it is today. With regard to that, have you established a protocol for when you'll be transitioning back to working in the in the your main offices? We've discussed, but we don't have anything concrete at this point in time. I think, you know, what we've talked about is doing things in shifts, so to speak, that maybe those that come back first would be in actual individual offices versus in cubicles, things of that nature, so that you're trying to still minimize that exposure as much as possible during a transition back. But to be determined, I think, you know, we're learning things as we go and making those adjustments accordingly as new information comes in. There's a lot of discussion around, I think, some organizations making the work from home the standard and having office space or or meeting space available to teams and things like that. Are you entertaining a partial permanent work from home? So I guess you did say that you guys had adopted telecommuting and are you just going to move forward with the existing approach or it's kind of fluid at this point, depending on circumstances? Yeah, I think it really depends upon the business needs of that particular group as to does telecommuting work for their long-term strategy. And, and like I said, we there were various people and various groups within McDot that were telecommuting on a quite regular basis. And so I I do see that continuing. And I think that what's been beneficial about this is that some of our supervisors and managers who may not have been so keen on telecommuting previously have seen, wow, we can still be productive and do this. And so I can allow my employees to have that as an available tool in our toolbox. So that's been a, a interesting to see that dynamic change as well. Even the folks that were most staunchly against telework have figured out that it's okay to do Teams calls and it's okay to do Zoom meetings. And, you know, I think there's this forced flexibility, especially with the environment with our public schools where parents don't have a choice but to have their children home. And as an employer, how do you in good conscience say you can't work from home and we can't be flexible around that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think the opposite has also happened. There are some groups that we sent home to telecommute and the functionality of it just didn't work. And so from a business perspective, we had to bring some of them back into the office and say, you know, it's just, we don't have the the technology mechanisms to make certain things work. So sorry, you guys have to, you know, from a business perspective, 
of you have to be in the office. And so it worked both ways, you know, mm-hmm. us being able to say, well, it made sense for our permits group to be at home. But in reality, then we had to bring bring them back and vice versa. Well, I wouldn't have thought of a, you know, I'm trying to think of something I wouldn't have thought of. <laughs> now now I, everything is telecommuting pretty much except for our maintenance and field crews. So yeah, it interesting. I'm one of those people. I, I like interacting with people. I like being able to call over my shoulder or, you know, do a lap around the office and see who's having a good day, who's having a bad day. Maybe somebody needs to go to lunch. You know, like I, I like that interaction and that impromptu brainstorming. Yes. That really kind of feeds me professionally and personally. And it's been a tough span of time. I've been working from home since the beginning of March. And I would never have guessed nine months ago that that would have been my last trip into the office. Yeah, I think it is very different. I'm also somebody who has to have that interaction. Um, I have not been fully telecommuting. I do go into the office quite a bit. And at the beginning, it was less than it is now. But definitely feel the need for a routine also. So my husband is a teacher. And so he was teaching at home and you can see his desk behind me. That It just didn't work with both of us in the same room and we just didn't have that ability. So, you know, the, the logistics aspect that people have had to deal with, because not only do you have two adults at home, but then the, the kids, you know, and how do you accommodate all those different people talking on the phone, talking on Zoom and uh, the logistics of it all has been interesting. Pulling on the Wi-Fi bandwidth and yeah. <laughs> rapid exactly. fire mute to try to catch dogs barking or kids fighting or somebody needing a snack. Or, yeah. you know. But I think we've allowed a lot of grace and I, I think we've learned more personally about people by being able to say, oh, what's that behind you, you know? And, <laughs> oh, I didn't know you had a dog or the cat comes through the <laughs> the meeting, you know, and watching that happen has been very interesting to be able to get to know people more on a personal level, which has been a huge benefit, I think, of the COVID. I agree. I, I've heard a number of people say that it's almost more humanized everyone because... Yeah. You know, you you go to work and you've put on your your best face, your best hair, your best clothes, your you know, you're you're presenting, you're showing up like we've all been taught to do. And you know, when you're working from home, sometimes other things I don't want to say get in the way of that, but reality is a little bit more apparent. Personally, I will be very excited to be back in a work environment with people and looking at someone across the table versus through a screen. Yeah, definitely. So not to put you on the spot, (laughs) but I understand that perhaps in the not too distant future, there might be a retirement for you on the horizon, not like 20 years from now, but less than 20 years from now. (laughs) Uh, yeah, definitely looking at uh, retirement in a, a five to 10 year time period. So, you know, it's, it's something we look forward to. Uh, I mean, that's what we build our career. I, you know, I don't know what it will look like or what I'll be doing. You know, there's so many options out there, but uh, definitely I have a place up in Pine and I just love being able to get out in the outdoors and hike. And I can see doing a lot more of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it will be interesting observing your succession planning because I know you're very intentional about that. And you've implemented a lot of great programs and changes at the county that I know you'll want to have carried on. And I believe Jesse's part of that. It's certainly as your deputy, he can take a big lift He's not covering design now, but construction and maintenance. But I would imagine eventually he'd be part of development and things of that nature too. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, definitely. That's not an area that directly reports to him, but we co-manage 
the entire department. And I would say from how we built the leadership team over the years too, is really a very collaborative approach. And so, you know, it's not you're only in design and you can't have any input into construction or maintenance. Everybody's working across those different areas. And that's what's critical to, I think, the success of the sustainability across the organization. So with that and being respectful of your time, is there anything that you would like to leave sort of parting thoughts? I would say in today's time and what we've gone through this year, you know, just look at each other with kindness. I think that's a critical component of everything that has happened this year that we need to really get back to looking at kindness and having that ability to, as we were talking about, try to understand what everybody is going through and, you know, try to put yourself in their shoes as to all the different things that they as an individual are are dealing with. Like you said, humanizing, I think that's a critical component of where we are in in the world right now. On that note, I just want to thank you so much for doing this. It was awesome to be able to finally interview you (laughs) for you to squeeze in the time. So I can't wait to share this with everyone. Well, thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping the industry. Jennifer Toth is someone who definitely has had a huge impact on the transportation industry in Arizona and is also helping to lead nationally on the front of autonomous and connected vehicles. I can't wait to see what the future holds for Jennifer and how she continues to influence the transportation industry in Arizona. We wish her nothing but the best. And as we wrap up this holiday week, Merry Christmas to everyone, and I can't wait to have you join me back next time. Until then, let's get moving.